Good morning. All right, I like that. A little hearty morning, a little heartier than the early folks, uh, but you've had, been up and had a, more, a few more cups of coffee. Good to be back with you. If you don't know me, my name is Mike McDaniel, and uh, I'm good to, to be back, and so thank you. It has been a journey, a, a, a journey that I want to share with you over the next five weeks. Uh, this is not a one-and-done, in-and-out kind of time. Uh, it will be a time, though, that it will, it will get a little raw at times for me and possibly and maybe should uh, properly for you. Uh, and so please, let's be honest with ourselves and with one another in this time uh, as we journey in, into this deep, dark parts. I, I'm thankful, though, over the past uh, four weeks now, you've had some great messages shared to you by some great voices of Grace Point. I, I'm telling you, starting with my wife, I have to brag on her. Uh, she knocked it out of the park a few weeks ago and just sharing very real and raw in her life. Yes. And I'm sure she heard that. She's in Nepal. So uh, anyway, so she's, she's there uh, doing her work there. But uh, uh, she's there. But then after that, we had Caleb uh, share with you just from the, the messiness of the life of Elijah. And we even heard, when Lori shared, it was from the life of David. Now, we all know David. He's the guy who wrote the Psalms, the harp player, the king, the, you know, the, the killer. The, the, he's a warrior of warriors. And at the same time, he has this tender heart, but yet his life is messy. And he talks about a pit. And he got really deep and honest with that. And Lori shared about that. And then a couple of weeks ago, you heard from Wade. Wade shared about Paul from the life of Paul and how he talked about a thorn in the flesh and how he had to live with this thorn. And it was, it's not described to us what that thorn is, but the reality is, is that sometimes you just got to live with some dark parts, some deep parts, some painful parts of your life. And I think forever, this will be one of those thorns that I will get to carry, even though it's self-induced. The, uh, the th- and then also you heard last week, and then capping it off, an amazing message from Randy, and just about, about forgiveness and how Jesus modeled it and how we all want it, but sometimes we withhold it whenever we're, when we're supposed to give it out. But in the short, when you look at that, when you talk about Dave, when you talk about Elijah, when you talk about Jesus, when you talk about Paul, there's just one common theme in all of that, whether it's Old Testament or it's New Testament or it's here or it's there or it's in the pages of this book. Life is messy. And sometimes life is messy because it, it comes to us and sometimes it's because we create it. And we're going to focus in this series on the messes that we create. And how do we get out of the messes that we create? How do we move from this state of regret that will hit us in an instant, that will stay with us, that will take us deep into shame, deep into the darkness, deep into the wounds of our own life, some we created, some that we've received? And how do we move to restoration? Is that even possible? Is that a pipe dream? Is it even, is it even a reality? So I'm going to share some things with you again that are going to be real and raw and still just below the surface with, with me and us and where we're at and some of y'all as well. Uh, and so let's just kind of journey through this together and, and, and know that even Dave and all these guys, the heroes of our scripture, dealt with mess. And so how do we deal with the mess that we create in our own lives? So let me just kind of paint it up, tee it up today. We're talking about a hypothetical situation. All right. What would you do in a hypothetical situation when somebody comes to you with a dark, painful secret, a painful part of their life that's happening to them, and you don't know anything about it, and they come to you and they vomit it up, and you, you're like, okay, what do I do with this? How can I help them? What can I do? And so you do what you do. I do what I do, is I get out and I try to understand it. So I, I got to understand it to be able to deal with it, all right? So you get out there on the great worldwide web or you get out there talking to people or you read a few books, or you go to a seminar and you start getting out in here in the world of this messy, fallen brokenness. And you get all the information you need to be able to understand. But all along, you see the door that's there. And that's what this is about. And that's what that person came to you and shared. And you think about that door and you get close to that door and there's a heat 
radiating from that door. And that you know if you were to push that button and you know if you were to go beyond that or you know that if you were to have that conversation or you know if that invitation would be extended that that other person would accept it. And you know that and you know that, but you don't and you think about it. And you get a little closer and there's sirens going off. Not real loud, just sirens kind of going off. Warning signs, red flags. And you kind of get over there as close as you can And then you kind of get on the other side. And you get on the other side and you know this is not where you're supposed to be, but you're on the other side. Why is that? What happens between the chair you're sitting in and you're getting the information given to you and you get out here and you circle around a few times and you're getting more information. You got all the information you need between here and that door. But you feel this desire. I want to hang on that word desire. You feel this desire to go a little bit further than you should, to go a little deeper than you should. What is that desire? What is that call? And this whole process in the past several weeks, it's been unpacking that. Why? Why would, why would you, why would I... Go on the other side of a door whenever I know on the other side of that door there is nothing profitable or good. I've done a lot of preaching to myself over the past. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this. We do too much talking to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. And it's about time that we need to open up this book and we need to let this book speak into our lives so that we're hearing truth and not merely the conscious voices of our heads, whether they're good or bad. We need to let this book speak into our life. And so I went back and I re-listened and I rethought through some of the messages. And I went back to a series of messages that I shared here a few months, maybe even over a year ago now, called Desire. And I encourage you, if you struggle with what I just described, that kind of stepping beyond where you should step, I encourage you to go back and re-listen to that series of messages. Because that, that whole idea Desire is what cripples us, trips us up, that we go stumbling beyond where we should go. I want to read to you a verse that I unpacked during that series called, it's in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. It says it like this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. These three buckets are three buckets that you can put just about every mistake, every mishap, every blunder, every momentary lapse of sanity. You can put just about every stupid move that we've made in our life, sinful move that we made in our life. You can put it in one of these three buckets. And so when you unpack these three buckets, what are you looking at when you're talking about desires of the flesh? Here's what I would call that. That's the natural desires, natural desires that they've gone wild. Natural desire has gone well. It's natural to desire a home. It's natural to desire a nice car. It's natural to desire a lot of things. But man, there's some things that we just don't have to have as much. But in America, I'll tell you this, this is one of the chief sins of our culture and one of the most unrepentant of sins of our culture. Materialism grips us. We go in debt into things and we do things and we buy things and it just, it, we, just, we just follow after our desires. We know that. Some of y'all in the marketing business to help speed that up so you know what I'm talking about. Number two, desires of the eyes. The visual desires uncontained. That's just basically whenever you allow your eyes to wander too far, too much, too long, lingering, hanging out there and going there. And you can imagine, you can fill in the, the low-lying fruit on this, and we'll just leave it there because that's not the heart of the message today. Is The easy one is the, the billion dollars, and I did say beef as in billion, the billion-dollar industry of pornography. I went to a continuing education seminar this past week, and it talked about women in pornography, not in pornography, but using pornography is the fastest growing, more than men, probably because men are saturated in it already, but the fastest growing are women using pornography. 
And in there, I was listening to a psychologist, a counselor in the front of the room, as he talked about how what happens to the brain as we use porn, that it literally morphs the brain. It begins to change the structure. Your brain is slightly mutates every time you see a pornographic image to the point that sexuality and sexual expression becomes a spectator sport rather than an intimate connection between a man and a woman bonding and uniting themselves together. It becomes a spectator sport. So then when it goes to the bedroom, it becomes a spectator sport there. You're not meeting my needs, therefore I'm going here. Again, when we allow our eyes to go places that they ought not go, when you think about where I've been and that door and that hot door and that door that was having alarms that were going off and I was tempted to go on the other side of that door, you might think, okay, well, Mike, you were dealing with the lust of the desires of the eyes or you were dealing with the lust of the desires uh, in, in, in your heart and in your, in your flesh. You were dealing with those. And you know what? It would naturally fit that category. Naturally. But I'm here to say that it's actually the next bucket that tripped me up. It's the inflation of self or arrogance. The pride of life is what John called it. That pride of life. We live in this, in this day, in this age of self. Okay, we have selfie sticks because of a self-obsessed uh, uh, generation that we live in. Somebody said it like this. I read it in, in, in an article that the selfie stick is to this generation what the fanny pack is to my generation. <laughs> and that's true. I own both, a fanny pack and a selfie stick. But we are so caught up in self-image. Facebook, what do I look like? What image am I casting out there? self-esteem. Even the last place team that didn't get, win a, a game gets a trophy because no kid needs to have a bad self-esteem. Self-promotion. I didn't get the job that I think I deserved that I should have got because somebody else got it. And so we have this self-entitlement, self-promotion, self-absorption. How do I look? What's my thoughts? What are people thinking about me out there? Self, 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 self. We are so consumed with self. It's a narcissistic culture in which we live. Self-confidence is what we talk about. Having more self-confidence. Dan Allender said it like this, self-confidence is nothing more than well-groomed arrogance. Self. It took a, a matter of days before my prophetic wife was speaking into my life. And she put, basically took me to this First John passage of Scripture. She said, Mike, which one was it? If, it? if you say it wasn't the lust of the eyes, if you say it wasn't the lust of the flesh, what was it, Mike? And it was, a, it, it, was a, it was a battle inside of me to wrestle it down to which one it was, but really what it was, it was pride. Because, see, I knew I had a good marriage, and I know I have a good marriage, and I knew that I, I, I was strong, and, and I know that I'm strong, and I know that I'm able. And, and you know what? This is, this is a lot of information right here. But you know what? There's got to be more information on the other side. And even though I am knowing that on the other side is nothing but disaster, I also know in my mind I'm strong. I'm capable. I'm able. And there's no way that it's going to affect me. But in reality, when you get on the other side, that's when you fall. Finish the statement for me. Pride goes before. That's pretty close. But actually, when you read the, the Bible, it doesn't say the fall. Pride doesn't go before the fall. It's actually more harsh than that. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, it says it like this. Pride goes before destruction, annihilation, absolutely falling apart. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. It's in that spirit, it's in that pride, it's in that arrogance, it's in that, hey, I can go on the other side of the wall because I've got a good marriage and I'm strong enough and I won't fall and I won't trip and I won't stumble. But the thing is, is that I can and I will. And that I'm not strong enough. And that it could have 
led to an absolute, utter destruction of family, of career, of life, of everything that I poured myself in, everything that I've studied for 25 years. And isn't it ironic that it happens in the year that I celebrate 25 years in ministry? So here's one thing of many truths that come out to me. None of us are safe. None of us. None of us. None of us mature beyond the temptation. Oh, that doesn't bother me anymore. You talk to an alcoholic, and we have a a, a man in our church who shared with me his story. He's been sober for 30 years. He still calls himself an alcoholic. So he's trained it that way. He shouldn't think that. It'll hurt his self-image, his self-esteem. That's, again, the self-narcissistic generation that we live in. The reality is he knows that if he doesn't call himself an alcoholic, that he will find himself right back into it again. None of us ever get free from the temptation. And in a matter of a heartbeat, in a matter of a click, in the matter of, of, of poor judgment, a lapse in sanity, we will find ourselves destroying everything that we built. And this is not just a spiritual concept. It is. It starts as a biblical concept, but it ventures out into every area of life. A few years ago, I read a book by Jim Collins. He talked about how the mighty fall. Many of y'all have read Good to Great, how these great companies go from good to great. He turns around and writes a book uh, following that. His sequel to that was on how great companies fail. And if any, how many of y'all have read that book? Raise your hand. So this is someone wearing this. Okay, a few of y'all. In here. You go to the very first of five stages of the fall of a mighty company, and the title is Hubris Born of Success. The concept that, hey, we're number one in this business and nobody can beat us. Sounds like good self-confidence, doesn't it? But the number one thing, the number one step, the first thing that happens to any company, or I will say this, any person, is when they think they won't fall. I won't fall. We all will fall, and we better watch out. I think maybe maybe that morning before Paul was writing the church at Corinth, he might have opened up the book of Proverbs or the scroll of Proverbs, and he might have read a little bit because whenever he writes the church at Corinth, this one verse I'm about to read to you, it's almost verbatim what he writes or Proverbs, uh, Solomon writes in Proverbs that we just read about pride, or, or pride comes before destruction. Listen to what he says here, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Just when you think you've got your feet under you, just when you think you've got it figured out, just when you think you're sure-footed and you won't fall, that is when you had better put on the greatest sense of awareness. Just when you look at your family and you think, hey, i got a son at West Point, i got a daughter who's graduating, gainfully employed, and gainfully married to somebody who's gainfully employed, and, and you look at your family tree and you look at your son, your, your last-born son, and he's growing in his faith, and you look at your own life and the ministry's prospering, you got a book contract, you have all this stuff going for you, and you're just at the top of your game, and then boom, beware. Because you think you're standing, and you just might fall. You might be the next one on your face. This came to me about a week into this whole recalibration journey. We tell our kids not to play with matches, right? But what I was doing was this right here. You know, I was just playing. I was just striking some matches. Nobody's going to get hurt with that, right? Just going to take this and light a few other matches, maybe. I'm just going to play with fire a little bit. I won't get hurt. All it takes is dropping it in the wrong place, burning my fingers, and it changes everything. Just a little match, but just play around with it. Just get on the other side of the door and see what happens. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in his, in his writing of that verse. He kind of writes it in his own way and paraphrases it very well. He says, we are just as capable of messing up as they or Mike McDaniel was. Don't be so naive. 
or self-confident. What did I say self-confident was? Quoted Allender. Self-confidence is well-groomed arrogance. You are not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. What we all need to do is we all need to put on wide-open eyes and wide-open... Learn from my stupidity today. Don't get as close to the door as you can. In fact, one of the things that I realized in this whole process is I was getting as close to do, to do my research, but the reality was is that any, any second I could have fallen, and what I should have done is I should have had more quiet time and read what Paul told young Timothy when he told him to flee youthful lust. Flee it. Don't get as close as you can to it, but flee from it. Take your Bibles. Turn on your Bibles and scroll down if that's how you function. Or uh, open the pages. Once you be finding an Old Testament book, it may take you a while. Uh, go to Second Chronicles. All right? Probably those pages are still stuck together if you have pages. And so uh, find Second Chronicles. We're going to go to a passage. I went to a lot of different passages, a lot of different looking at. But this is one on the very first day that God took me to. And he took me back there again. And he took me back there again. And he took me back there again. And it wasn't until last week that I thought, okay, this is something that I need to share with all of you. Because if you look at this, you find, you find a, 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 some, some similarities. So let me give you the backdrop as you look, find for Second Second Chronicles chapter 7. This is a 20-year building program it's probably gone on for about 50 years because David started it, saving money for it, planning for it, locating the land for it and all that kind of stuff. But it was Solomon who actually instigated the building of the temple. It's been 20 years in the making. Chapter 6 of Second Chronicles is actually his prayer of dedication. It's a beautiful prayer. You need to read it. We're going to actually talk about that next week a little bit. But you find this Solomon's temple being built. It's beautiful. It's the most beautiful temple ever built. And we're at the ribbon-cutting ceremony. That's when we're jumping into this story. At the ribbon-cutting ceremony. And they have just celebrated. And they're celebrating. And, and everybody's happy and fed. And, and things are so beautiful in the land. And they're, and they're, and they're prosperous. And, well, let's just read this. Now, Second Chronicles chapter uh, 7, verse 8, it says, At that time, Solomon held a feast for seven days. That's like a buffet for seven days. That's heaven, okay? And all Israel with him. And a great assembly from uh, Labo Hamath, uh, to the brook of Egypt, which metaphorically was described as basically speaking about the entire length of the con- country. The entire country was in this state of celebration. And on the eighth day, they, they held a solemn assembly. And they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and, and the feast for seven days. And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes. Now, notice how he describes the life that they were living. They were joyful, they were glad of heart, and for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. This is a beautiful picture. A people being fat, people being full, people being wealthy, for two generations, under David, under Solomon, it is the most prosperous time in the land. And to top it off, they built the long-awaited temple that David has been talking about, that Solomon has been building. It's finally done. The ribbon-cutting ceremony is here. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. He even had his house done. And all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, now notice this next statement, don't miss it. He successfully accomplished. Hubris born of success. You remember that statement? When you reach that point in your life when beautiful things are happening, everything's in line, that's the time you need to fall on your knees and say, Lord, thank you. Lord, I deserve none of this. Lord, What do you want me to do with this? Everything that Solomon had done was, uh, you know what I'm saying, uh, accomplished. 
okay, wins. Everything, everybody's happy, everyone's fed. Isn't that beautiful? Then on top of that, for the second time, and only the second time that we know of, uh, only two times that we know of, one was uh, actually recorded in First Kings chapter uh, 9 when, he, when God shows up to Solomon and Gideon, or Gibeon, then he shows up to Solomon again in a vision. So not only that, this ribbon-cutting ceremony happens, and God shows up to Solomon again. Now, Now, notice what he said in verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So he affirms everything that they just did. But verse 13 is the real kicker. When? Circle it. When? Not if. When? When means it's going to happen. When? I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. When? What? You're raining on my parade, God. Come to me in a vision and tell me I've done something right. Come to me in a vision and say, this is going to go on forever and ever and ever. Amen. Come to me in a vision and tell me my kids are going to prosper and everything's going to be wonderful and they're going to get chosen for the elite school and they're going to get the, 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 the captain of the football team. Tell me that kind of stuff, God. Don't come and tell me that you're going to shut up the heavens. Don't tell me that you're going to send pestilence. Don't tell me you're going to send locusts to devour my crops. Tell me that. Why are you raining on my parade? Because here's the reality. Is when you're at the top of your game, you better watch out because you might fall right then. He was looking in the future because God sees, to, he sees beyond time. He looks down at it. We see it in day to day to day to day. He saw, he saw it all. He said, listen, there's coming a day that I'm going to send some harsh times upon you. Now, you may think, oh, God, you're so mean. Why would you do that? Why would God's justice come like that? Let me say this. It's God's loving justice. We bring it on ourselves when we ignore the bells and the whistles and the red flags and we step beyond the door that he tells us not to go beyond. You better believe it. We bring it on ourselves. And it's the, the times that we get caught, we get found out that it may be God's loving justice that's bringing, that's coming to bear on us. Loving justice. It may be him whenever, what does he do? He brings drought. That's that that's season of desperation. There may be seasons of desperation in your life. He may, he may bring destruction. That's seasons of starvation. And he says, listen, I'm going to have the locusts and they're going to devour it. Listen, they remember the stories of Moses. They remember the stories of Pharaoh. If you go back and you read that story, the reason that God sent the locusts is because of the pride of Pharaoh the pride of life. You go on and you read that he's going to send misery as well, disease. There's going to be seasons that things aren't going to be beautiful. And sometimes we bring them on ourselves. Why, why, why would God do that? I believe it's his arm of loving justice. Listen, listen, listen. Coming out, trying to bring us back. You went too far. You ventured out too far, come back. And sometimes it hurts. That misery, that disease, that destruction, that pain that we go through. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? The reality is we know that is he, he does it because he loves us. He spells that clearly out in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. He disciplines us because he loves us. What do we do with it? Some of y'all right now, listen, you're living in a drought. Right now, some of y'all are living in misery. And you know you brought it on yourself. What do you do? God, you got to keep reading. The story doesn't end. And that's the beauty of this. This, my friends, is not religion. This, it's fanning a flame of a relationship with God Almighty. Okay, if this was religion, we'd bow a few times, cross ourselves a few times, uh, offer up some sacrifices a few times, whatever. Then we'd uh, hopefully that'd make everything all right, right? 
If you're a Muslim, you'd, you'd, create, you'd create some kind of jihadist thing over here that, that you'd kill people so that you, in honor of Allah, so that you could ultimately win something over there. We would do something. Listen, the beauty of this is in verse 14. And for the next five weeks, including this week, this is all we're going to look at is verse 14. If my people... See, the contingency is upon us. If my people who are called by my name... Notice my people called by my name. Notice the relationship. My people called by my name. If, 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 if. So if you're sitting in this room and you dug yourself your own little pit, your own little mess, your own little tragedy, if, 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 my people who are called by my name, And I want us to read this verse together out loud. And I want you to memorize this with me over the next five weeks if you haven't already. Read it with me. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Four points of action. Three responses from God. The next four weeks, including this week, we're going to look at our four points of action. The very first one, you can't miss it there, humble themselves. Humble themselves. What we're going to need to do in this whole humility gig here is to understand what is humility, okay? The very first thing that we need to do, the first move that we're going to do is relinquish yourself to God's leadership in your life. All right? That's what humility is. Notice he didn't say you need to face humiliation. Okay? Embarrassment and shame. There's a difference between humility, and this is going to be a question in your communitas group this next week, so really get this. There's a difference between humility and humiliation. Humiliation is tied to shame, is tied to this egg on the face, is tied to something that you did and got caught and it's nasty and you try to make up and you try to cover up and you try to wash it away, you give excuses for it. Humiliation is nasty, dirty. Get rid of it as soon as you can. Humility is something you should have every day. Humility is a posture of your heart. It's an attitude of who you are. That's, that's what he's talking about here. This word humility actually has a a military connotation to it. It's a Hebrew word used about 36 times in the the Old Testament. And and 18 of those times it's used in a military context of subjugation, of somebody saying, okay, I have a commander and a chief and I'm going to fit here. In our self-society, we are our own commanders and chiefs. In God's economy, He's our commander-in-chief. We fit under Him. We submit to Him. We are humble before Him. The other 18 times, it's used in a spiritual context. That we are humble, that we humble ourselves before God, that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And the reality is we just sang a song about carrying our white flag and bearing our white flag. It's the idea of surrender. It's the idea of humility is I'm going to humble myself. I am choosing humility. So if we're talking about moving from regret to restoration, we're going to do things in a sequence here based on 2 Chronicles. If we're talking about that, the first word is regret. That's the moment you sin and you know you get caught. Or the moment you sin and guilt comes over you. The moment you do something stupid against God's rules and man, it's like, I can't believe I did that. That's regret. But regret, how do you get out of regret? Relinquish. Relinquish. That's humility. I'm going to put myself, I'm not in the driver's seat any longer. I'm not at the boss any longer. I'm not going to worry about the future any longer. I'm not going to try to self-promote myself any longer. I'm not going to make sure that I, I justify myself any longer. I'm not going to get as close to the door as I can any longer. If God says flee youthful lust, I'm not going to go hang out next to the youthful lust. I'm going to run from it. I'm going to operate on a new system here. The very first thing, if I'm going to move from regret to restoration, is I'm going to relinquish something here, and that is myself. That's humility. That's humility. 
Two ways we relinquish your life, and I'll be finished. One, you relinquish the command and control. Relinquish command and control of your life. I'm not calling the shots any longer. I'm not my boss any longer. My pride got me here. My pride's not going to get me out of here. I dug this mess. I'm not going to dig my way out. We tell ourselves, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's maybe one of the worst things you could do. The best thing you could do is look up to God and say, God, I got myself here. I need you to get me out. I can't get out. I dug this pit. We climb out of pride's destruction by climbing into humility. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 even talks about clothing ourselves in humility. See, the opposite of pride is humility. The antidote to pride is humility. I have a receipt that, it, that it's really not business and it's really not pleasure, but you know what? I think I could self-justify it. I'm going to turn it in because you know what? They don't pay me enough. That's pride. You turn in the receipt. Oh, you may not get caught. There's so many other receipts anyway, right? She's not, he's not putting out. Justified to go where I shouldn't go. Conversations I'm having with somebody, not exactly the healthiest conversation. Hope my spouse doesn't find out about that conversation. But you know what? We're just friends. Self-justifying pride. I can handle this pride. So much of what causes our own self-destruction is our own pride. The best thing we can do is to release command and control of our own life. This one Hebrew word, I've studied these words in depth. There's an Aramaic cognate to this word, and it was a beautiful word picture of a bird, of an eagle folding its wings. Just folding its wings. Listen, we got to fold our wings. We got to fold our wings and say, okay, God, if you don't want me to do this, if you don't want me to, I'm just going to fold my release command and control of your life back to God. That's one of the things. Second is relinquish your future. Relinquish your future. Put it, put it back. Listen, so much of what we try to control, so much of what we try to manipulate is our future. We, we want this or we want that promotion or we want that success or we want that role on the team or we want first chair in the band or we, we, we so much, and that's pride then comes in. And we start self-sabotaging or sabotaging someone else or we shouldn't have got laid off last Friday. They should have got laid off and that person got a promotion. What were they thinking? And we get into this whole pride conversation. It's tough. It's a battle. Life principle, if pride comes before a fall, humility comes before the rise. The process that Lori and I have gone through over the past four weeks has been a very therapeutic process for us. There were things that we took on. My role as lead pastor, her role in her job, her title, my title, her power, my power, da, 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 da. You know what we've done? We've done this. It has been the most freeing thing. God, if you don't want us here, we won't be here. God, if you don't want us there, we won't be there. God, our future is in your hands. Our, our destiny is in your hands. It has been one of the most freeing things. I want you to read about five or six verses out loud with me. I want your, I want your brain to hear you say these words. Jesus says it twice, a couple of times, um, the same phrase. Read it with me, Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow. In case you didn't hear it the first time, let's go over four more chapters to Luke 18, verse 14. And he says this, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself. Totally different paradigm than we live in. 
My future is not my future. It's God's future. I'm going to trust you with it, God. I'm going to trust you with it. You're in the command and control of my life. I like this one too. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it like this. Read it with me. Be humble before the Lord. You want to be great? You want to be known? You want to be awesome? You want to be somebody? You want to be that person? Don't worry about it. Let him promote. You want that to succeed? You want your new business to succeed? You want that? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Humility is not a bad posture. That's not humility. Humility is a posture of your heart. God, my future is in your hands, and I'm going to trust you with it. I like this next one. I've been, I've been thinking about this one all week long. Read it out loud with me. It's also worth memorizing. It's what I'm going to be memorizing this week. Isaiah 29, verse 19. The meek shall obtain It's the only time in all of the Bible that it says fresh joy. I mean, what is he thinking? Like fresh baked bread? Is he talking about stale joy? I'll take stale joy sometimes. Day old joy? No, I love it. That when, when there's humility, there's going to be an ever supply of fresh, abundant, like an artesian well that never runs out, joy. But it's not going to happen when I'm pot, proud, arrogant, bow back my shelves, self-confident and some kind of, again, uh, manicured kind of arrogance. No, it's going to be in humility. It's going to be in meekness, fresh joy. I read it in another translation and it said it like this. Um, It said, uh, the humble will have joy after joy. And you might say after joy, after joy, after joy in the Lord. You want to pick a fight with God? Let me tell you how, real easy. Get arrogant. Do this. Ignore his voice when you're at the door. Pick a fight with God. Like, oh, you, why do you say that? Look at what First Peter says. Read it with me. First Peter five five. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He literally fights you. You get arrogant, cocky, self entitled. You get you get all all worked up on yourself and what you can do and what you should be. You get as close to the door and think, hey, I, I won't fall. I won't stumble. I won't. No. Listen, I will bring you down to size is what God said. All right, that's my translation of what Peter said there. Here's another one. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. God does want to honor you. He does want to bless you. He does want to give to you. He does want to supply for you. But it's not going to be through your arrogant, self-confidence, prideful manner. 2005, and I want to close with this story. In 2005, and I, I brought it with me just to show you. Not that you're going to be able to see it unless you're on the front row. But in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4, is a verse that I started memorizing. And I even have it down here, July 22nd, 19, uh, excuse me, uh, 2005. All right, 2005. So you, I memorized verses and I put them in these little cards. And, and it's kind of just a discipline of my, of, of my life. And it totally, totally carries me through life. That's why I challenge you all to memorize scripture. I've given you two verses this week to memorize. But notice, July 22nd, 05. I think, what was going on then that I would memorize this verse? Read it with me. The rewards of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. I want riches. I want honor. I want life. Where do you get it? You get it through humility through willingly putting yourself under, letting somebody else like God call the shots in your life. That's where you find riches, honor, and life. It's not in self-promotion. It's not in bowing your chest back. It's not in saying you deserve this and in positioning yourself. It's not in protecting your self-image. Gosh, if I was protecting my self-image, I wouldn't have done what I did uh, a few weeks ago. So what was going on? Eight months prior to this, this little memory verse. In fact, it was the very first weekend in December in Waxahachie, Texas. I can't even say that. I, Texas I can say, but Waxahachie stumbled. 
I went to a time, a retreat. Lori and I went away. It was in 2004, December. And it rocked us to this day. To this day. This five, four-week journey that we have been on, we have been going back and reliving what we experienced at this 2004 December retreat. And it was this process of God humbling me. Because up until 2004, I promised half of you would not want me to be your pastor. I was an arrogant little prick, all right? I was. I had it figured out, and you needed to figure it out. And I had the answers. I had it all figured out. I had all my ducks in a row. And I could come and I could tell you how to get your ducks in a row. And I was pretty good at telling you how to get your ducks in a row. So we go away and they peel back the trash of our life. They talk about my childhood and her childhood. They talk about our life and our career together. And our, it was a ripping off kind of time. And the phrase that stuck with us was, Mike, you need to lead from your brokenness. And I came back and I had a change of my life where I began to teach different, live different, think different. And here's what it was. I began to be real from this stage or that stage. I began to be transparent and talk about my own sins. Not just talking about yours. Talking about mine. I began to be real. And most of the time, you know what? You get to relish the benefits of my mistake six months ago, six years ago, a childhood mistake or something like that. And I make fun, poke fun of myself because I learn a lot through those times. But here's the problem with this one. You're being asked to live in it. You're being asked to live in it. And I'm sorry. I really wish that this was a year from now. And you could come in and you could hear me talk about something that happened a year ago and how I got stupid and how a momentary lapse of sanity came upon me. And yeah, yeah, I learned from this. I learned this, this, and this. The reality is that you're getting to learn as I learn. God took me so many times to Psalm 51, Psalm 51. If I went there once, I went there a hundred times throughout this journey. But he led me to one verse again and again and again and again and again and again. Psalm 51, verse 17, where it says, A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. And I'm going to tell you right now, if I've dealt with anything, I've dealt with this more than anything. It's the absolute shame. The shame that I brought you. The shame that I bring myself. The shame, the embarrassment that I bring my family. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I am not going to pretend be anything but who I am broken Psalm 51 17 has another translation the good news translation puts it like this oh God oh God you will not reject a humble and repentant heart. And the image that came to my mind as soon as I read that was this picture of my arms being reaching out to God and God embracing me. That was immediately the image that came to my mind. And it was like one arm was called humility and another arm was called repentance. It was as if I'm reaching up to God. How's he responding back to me? He won't reject me. He embraces me. Y'all, 
I'm not the only one broken in this room today. I know some of y'all have got stuff hidden, stuffed back for years. Some of y'all have something hidden right now. I'm not asking you to forgive me. That's up to you and God. That's between you and Scripture. But I am asking you to be broken over yourself, over where you aren't right. A, A repentant and a humble person God will embrace. God will not reject. Can we pray together? Where are you at? Do you have two arms reaching up to God? Is there something in your life, some shameful something, some regret-filled time, attitude, place that you know is there and you're not going to ever have to stand on a stage and tell everyone about it. But you pray to God that so-and-so and so-and-so never finds out about it. Listen. A broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. A repentant and humble individual, God will not reject. We're going to have prayer partners all around this room, on the landing, on the front here. Just go to them and just say, hey, listen, I'm I'm broken. Then you don't have to tell them you're junk. You don't have to tell them you're junk. Just say, I'm broken. Would you pray for me? Had somebody in the last service from Kansas just stopped in today. Just stopped in today. Been going through a divorce. What are you going through? Father God, you know the hearts and the lives of the people in this room right now. And we all need to humble ourselves. Lord, humiliation is not what you're calling for. Shame is not what you're calling for. But us humbling ourselves. Lord, we bless you. Thank you for embracing us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing about our good, good Father? But listen, we've been doing this for several weeks now. Would you consider going to find somebody at the front here or in the back and just say, listen, I'm broken. Would you pray for me? This is your time.